Uh, I've heard from a number of you uh, this past week about um, different thoughts about our study through the book of Jonah, and really I'm always grateful for that kind of feedback, just to hear what God is saying to different people, and sometimes it's interesting to me because I just, I I plan a message and I, I give it, and then it just lands on people's ears so differently. People come spiraling out of this gathering with lots of different and really neat and really worthy ideas. I got one email from Deb Raymond. She said this. She said, I've been struck by the fact that God appointed a fish, a plant, and a worm. So often as humans, pride is associated with being appointed. However, the opposite is also true and gives us hope, and that is God appointed a fish, a worm, and a plant, humble, lowly things, He can still use me for his kingdom as I remain humble. He is amazing for sure. And I was just really encouraged by that thought, wanted to share it with you. I've heard other really wonderful thoughts too. And just, I love to hear the way that God is doing his work through the teaching of his word. It's very encouraging. Um, One thing's for sure though, and I was thinking about it uh, just before I stepped up to the podium this morning. Uh, Jonah, as broken and wrong and twisted a man as he is, is responsible, I think, for one of the greatest revivals in all of history. (laughs) That God did it through that man gives me great hope as this man assumes the pulpit this morning. If God could cause an entire city to turn and repent through such a wayward, heart-sick man as Jonah, oh, God, that gives me hope. (laughs) That gives me hope because I know how deeply imperfect Josh Tate is. And I'm just so grateful to have a God who does all kinds of wonderful, miraculous, divine things through ordinary, broken human beings like me and you. Amen? Well, we are going to conclude our study through the book of Jonah this morning. And we're going to start in the last verse of chapter 3, and I'm going to read straight through the end of chapter 4. So you can turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, Beginning at Jonah 3, verse 10, it says, When God saw what they did, speaking about the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my, in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. 
And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. (laughs) And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Question mark. That's the end of the book. It's the end of the book. And I almost wish the book was at least one more chapter long. I'd like to know what Jonah said. I'd like to know what Jonah thought. I'd like to know where it goes from there. But it it seems to me that God very intentionally wants this story to end with just that question mark hanging out there like a bad smell in the room, (laughs) just kind of out there. And that's where it ends. I, I do say, and I said this a, f- a few weeks ago, that I do think there's lots of reason to hope for Jonah. That this is written, I think, in sort of a confessional flavor, right? The only person who could have known about this interaction between God and Jonah was who? Jonah. So I think at a minimum, Jonah lets us know about this absurd conversation with God where he says, yes, I do right to be angry, angry enough to die, (laughs) which is a very, very strongly worded response to God, I think. But here's what I want to do first. Verse 1 of chapter 4. We're going to spend most of our morning this morning just talking about this extraordinary statement. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah was angry at God. In the original Hebrew, verse 1 literally reads, this is how it would be literally rendered if translated in a word-for-word kind of way, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. Those are really shocking words. Jonah is accusing God in sparing the people of Nineveh of evil, wrongdoing, Now, this chapter, this book, contains a lot of absurdity. A preacher who is angry at the success of his ministry, that's absurd. A missionary who is hoping that the people he is preaching to continue in their sin and idolatry, that's absurd. A grown man acting like a child, that's absurd. A man valuing the life of a plant more than a city full of 120,000 souls, that's absurd. But none of these, none of these, as absurd as they are, are as absurd as the picture that is painted for us of Jonah arguing with God about what is right and wrong. Let me ask you something. How do we know the difference? How do you know what is right and wrong? What basis do human beings have for calling one thing good and one thing evil? It's a great question. It's a necessary question, especially for these days that we are living in. 
God's description of the Ninevites in verse 11 is this. He says, they don't know their right hand from their left. They're very confused, these people. And this phrase could very easily be applied to our country today. We're living in the days of great moral confusion. By describing the Ninevites in this way, God is saying something like they don't know their elbow from their earwax. They're confused. This great and powerful and wealthy city has loads of experts who have all the answers, but they don't know what the question is. At best, our society today openly questions if such things as right and wrong even exist. And at worst, they get them totally mixed up. They call right wrong, and they call what's wrong right. Guys, we are living in the midst of a people who don't know their right hand from their left. And just look at the absurdity of Jonah arguing with God about right and wrong. Guys, God is the sole arbiter of truth. He made the world. And as the creator, he designed it to reflect his glory, to put on display how excellent and satisfying and high and wonderful he is. That is the purpose of life. That is what this world exists to accomplish. And the categories of right and wrong are not arbitrarily assigned. They flow naturally, organically, from the very character and nature of God. All that is right and good agrees with who God is, and all that is wrong runs contrary to who he is. How do we know what's right and wrong? We look to God for the answers to those questions. And so how absurd, how crazy, how off the charts bonkers is it for Jonah sitting on this hillside to say to God, you've done an evil thing. You're wrong. You've done a bad thing. Jonah, the prophet of God, is arguing with the source of truth about what is truth. He's arguing, not questioning, not probing, not trying to get to the bottom of it. He has a settled conviction that God has transgressed. Verse 1 tells us that Jonah felt that what God had done in sparing the Ninevites was evil. And the question we have to ask is what standard, if God is not the standard in Jonah's mind, what standard was Jonah using to determine right from wrong when he leveled this charge against God? Don't you see what Jonah's doing? In going to God and saying what you've done is wrong, he's making himself himself. He's making himself the determiner of what is right and wrong. He's making himself judge over God. And this is the acme of folly, the highest summit of foolhardiness. And it's extremely prideful. And I say it's prideful because a good working definition of pride is this. Pride is a grasping desire for the place of God. And in charging God with wrongdoing, Jonah, a mere man, a created being, is mimicking Satan, also a created being, also who tried to seize the place of God. 
He's put himself in the place of God as judge and as the determiner of right and wrong. What Jonah was doing is not so different from what we see some people doing today. People are determining what is right and wrong based not on what God has said or on his character, not on his revealed word, but on what? On what basis? How they feel. Or according to popular sentiment, popular opinion, human philosophy, and wisdom, these things become the basis. And what we are seeing in real time in our culture today, human beings saying to God, this is evil. This is a thought crime. (laughs) This is wrong. It's happening. According to Barna Research Group, nearly one quarter of Gen Z strongly agrees that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. There's a wide generational divide on this point. Twice as many Gen Z than boomers, who are 12%, believe this. Barna Research Group says the centrality of the self as moral arbiter is also higher among the younger generations. 21% of Gen Z, 23% of millennials, believe each individual is her or her own moral authority. Though Gen X, 18%, and boomers at 17% aren't too far behind on this one. Those those percentages only represent the respondents who strongly agree with that statement. So those are the people who are absolutely, yes, that's right. But there's a, behind them is another large percentage of people who think maybe that's kind of right. So these percentages only represent those respondents who strongly agree. And so there is a broader public acceptance that morality can be fluid. Teens in Barna focus groups elaborated on their perspective. One participant said, society changes and what's good or bad changes as well. It is all relative to what's happening in the world. This is moral evolutionism. Rather than operating from a conviction that right and wrong are fixed notions handed down to us from a creator, there is a view that notions of right and wrong are fluid, dynamic, ever-evolving. And Jonah, my friends, was way out ahead of these trends. Jonah was a pioneer in this movement. (laughs) His notions of right and wrong are not derived from thus saith the Lord. And we know this because he is arguing with that same Lord about what he saith. And he's calling it evil and wrong. He was looking within himself for what was right and wrong rather than looking outward at God. And if pride is a grasping desire for the place of God, then humility is the proper recognition of who God is and a yielding to him his proper place in our lives. We should make the adjustment to him and to his perfect standards of righteousness and not insist that God adjust or conform to our inferior perspective. The big overarching point of the book of Jonah is not that God is merciful, but rather be merciful as God is merciful. uh, 
Pastor John Piper makes that point, and I really like it. This is the big overarching point of the book. Not that God is merciful, though he is. The big point of Jonah is you're supposed to be like the God who you worship. The book recounts God's patient, continuing efforts to fit his hard-hearted, reluctant messenger Jonah to his message of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And God is always doing this. God is always about the business of shaping and fitting his messengers to his message. And I'm really excited as we conclude our study through the book of Jonah this morning because I believe with all my heart, I believe 100% certainty that God has a message that he wants to preach through State Road Advent Christian Church. God has something he wants to do through us, his people here. And he wants... But he is intent, and we need to know this, he is intent on fitting us, his messengers, to his message. This is what he's about. This is what he wants to accomplish in our lives. It's not that God loves to give his people to-do lists. It's that he loves to change who we be so that what we do naturally flows from a transformed heart. This is what he's all about. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do Do you see what this verse is saying? In being equipped for every good work, or to put it another way, in the process of being shaped as messengers fitted to the message, that God has given us to deliver with our words, actions, and lifestyles, every good work, along the way, we will need to be taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained. We are all Jonah. Jonah is a man who needs to be taught some things. He is a man who desperately needs a kick in the pants, (laughs) some rebuking, correcting, and he's being trained by degrees. But here, as the chapter, as the book comes to an end, we still see an unreformed Jonah, don't we? Thus the question mark that it ends with. We are all Jonah. I'm Josh Tate as a Jonah, 100%, no doubt about it. We need to be in God's word to be shown the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Not by searching our hearts or by thinking long and hard about it. Not through navel-gazing. Not through sitting around in a drum circle and talking about it all. We, We can't find truth those ways. You can't find truth by doing a poll. You can't find truth those ways. Jonah couldn't. We can't. We need to be in God's word. The story of Jonah is the story of a servant of God who, again, is rebuked, corrected, trained, and taught, and that is my story, that is your story, that is our story as a church. So here, let's take a look at what happens with Jonah. We might call this (laughs) Jonah-itis, this disease. We're going to look at the symptoms of Jonah-itis. I know we've all heard a lot about pandemics. Have you ever heard about the pandemic of (laughs) Jonah-itis? It is spreading. There's an important lesson in chapter 4 for us, and we need to recognize the perils of what Jonah is doing here, because we can't afford to go, as a church, we cannot afford to go down this path of asking God to fit his message to our hearts, our natural predilections, when it's us 
that are misshapen and out of position. In chapter 4, Jonah shows us five things, we might call them symptoms, that will follow when a follower of God rejects God's word as their ultimate authority for faith and practice and replaces it instead with their feelings, human philosophy and wisdom, or even just plain old popular opinion. Five things that show up in Jonah's life. The first is isolation. Verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city. Staying on in Nineveh would have been the most obvious thing, I think, for Jonah to have done. There's been a citywide revival. People have turned to God. They have recognized him as the one true God. They've turned in genuine repentance. And we know it's genuine because God, looking down on the hearts of these people, says that's what it is. And following that citywide revival, he would have been among fellow believers in Jehovah who needed to know more about the God before whom they now bowed. The Ninevites already appreciated Jonah for his part in bringing them God's word and would have been provided him with an eager audience. But instead of exercising a useful ministry among these new converts, Jonah cuts himself off. He puts himself at a distance. They've been the recipients of God's grace, but they are no friends of Jonah. He wants nothing to do with them. Isolating himself in this way leads to our next thing, which is inactivity. Well, that's coming up. But please know this. I do think that in a, in a church, very often, um, somebody who is a Jonah, somebody who has made themselves the determiner of right and wrong, uh, if the church continues on a biblical course, they will isolate themselves. They will remove themselves from that conversation because, you see, you're not submitting to a mutual authority. They don't view God's word as authoritative in the way that maybe you do. They are the authority, and when you run afoul of their sense of right and wrong, they tend to isolate themselves. This is a symptom of Jonah-itis. A second one is selfishness. Look at the words I, me, or my. They occur eight times in verses two to three alone. Jonah is totally wrapped up in his feelings. He is totally concerned with me, myself, and I. God's perspective is always outward. Look at Philippians 2.3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And a clear sign that we are not being shaped by God's word is self-focus. We see that Jonah is a very self-involved individual. He is isolated and he is self-involved. And number three, It also leads to misdirected activity. In verse 5, and it says this, And he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Instead of joining God in what God is doing, in throwing himself into the effort to develop and nurture this newly born community of faith in Nineveh, Jonah is instead out on a desolate hillside trying to build some kind of a covering with sticks to keep the sun off. This is what he's doing with his time. And many Christians today are busy, but they're not busy building the kingdom. 
They are too busy building a name for themselves. They're storing up riches. They're making themselves more comfortable in this life. When we don't submit to the word of God, allowing it to shape us, we will inevitably be drawn into all kinds of worthless activities. A fourth sign, symptom of Jonah-itis, is irrationality. Jonah's statement that he wanted to die is, I think, an attempt to impress God with just how strongly he feels about this stuff. It sounds as though he has hit the rock bottom of despair, but in truth, it is more a question of being irrational. Remember, just a short while ago, what was Jonah doing? Begging for his life. (laughs) Remember his prayer? I was dropped to the bottom of the mountains. The seaweed was wrapping around me. God, don't let me die. I'll do whatever you want. Now, God has done what he wanted, and he's like, it makes me want to (laughs) die. Jonah, this is irrational. And what has intervened to make him change his mind? It was nothing other than a citywide repentance met by the grace of God. Others had been shown the same mercy that God had shown to him, and that just makes him want to die. Jonah has allowed his feelings to take precedence over the word of God, and what follows is irrationality. Don't try and map this out. Don't try and find reason at the root of what Jonah's doing. It doesn't make sense. It is not sensical. Whenever somebody rejects the word of God, they won't submit to it and allow it to shape them. Don't expect their mode of living to make sense. It's not going to line up. Just like Jonah, they will demonstrate irrationality. This brings us to our fifth one, a folly and lack of perspective. As Jonah sits in sullen isolation, the Lord miraculously provides a vine that shoots up overnight. He awakens to find that his weird stick structure, whatever it was, is that something people used to do? I don't know. Is this like the original pop-up tent? I don't know. Just stick some sticks in the ground? I don't know. This is something weird's happening here. But he awakens to find that his little structure has had a divine makeover. And it's wonderful. Structurally, it's been made more secure. The tendrils have kind of bound it all together. I imagine Eeyore's structures. Remember that? He is kind of Eeyore-esque, isn't he, Jonah? And aesthetically, it's been turned into this delightfully cool, shady arbor. In kindness, the Lord has provided the vine to give protecting shade for Jonah. But Jonah's delight is wildly out of proportion. In fact, I'm just going to say it, it's weird. Strange. Because he has allowed his feelings to dictate his view and his life and not the word of God, he has lost all sense of perspective. He is euphoric over a plant and indifferent to the destruction of the city. He stands in need of divine instruction. His heart needs the makeover, not his little hovel. And I want to be clear about this. Uh, I, I want to be very clear that I've grown up in the church my entire life. I was born into it. I was, you know, that's my whole life has been lived out among God's people here in America. And I have met far more Christians 
whose heart and mind have been shaped by the Bible and whose lives are marked by a joyous, yielded obedience to God than I have encountered Jonah's. As I look out over this group here this morning, I'm looking at my friends, my brothers, my sisters, I see many more sincere, warm followers of Jesus than anything else. I I do, and I think that's been my experience growing up in the church. Jonah's are not the majority, and I don't mean to pretend as though they are, but they are not as uncommon as we would like them to be either, right? And I think sometimes we're all on the perspective, uh, on the, the spectrum here from somewhere, one, a, one to ten, and I am, I am uncomfortable at some of my own personal resemblance to Jonah at times in this story. Maybe you are too. There are Jonahs today in the church. There are. There are people who take issue with God over the rightness of his judgments. They disagree with God, if not in word, then in lifestyle. And these folks have replaced the word of God for their feelings or the emptiness of human philosophy and wisdom. And the book of Jonah ends in a strange and maybe even in an unsatisfying way. You have to wonder again, how did it all end for Jonah? At first, it can feel kind of unsatisfying to end with the question. It's almost as if the ending of the book has been lost. But God wants it to end with this question. And maybe he wants that question to confront me and you and our hearts as well. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Question mark. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, here we sit, looking out on the world with a question mark hanging over us, which is simply this, what do we love? What do we treasure? What causes us to feel anger? What causes us to feel hope? What has informed our notions of what is right and wrong? Father, Jonah is one of the least self-aware people we encounter in all the Bible. Father, it's just almost as if the world ends at the tip of his nose. And Father, if we are similarly blinded, if, if I am similarly blinded or me or any of my friends here who are listening. Father, we ask you to do a merciful thing. Like Jonah, God, would you pursue us? Would you pursue us, God? Would you bring us back? Would you break us if we need breaking? Would you mend us if we need mending? Oh God, we invite you to teach us to rebuke us, to correct us, to train us, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Father, fit us, your messengers, to your message. Sanctify us, O Lord, by your truth. Your word is truth. Father, these are dark days, but dark days are the context for lights to shine all the brighter. And Father, I pray that you would do a work here in the midst of my friends at State Road. God, teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness, God, that we might shine in a sincere way in the midst of these dark days. God, give us a heart that mirrors your own. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.